Thank you, Brother Brandon, and what a joy it is to be here and just to be a part of this special weekend in the life of your church. And I'm especially grateful, as Debbie would echo and say amen, that we got to see our grandkids, and we also like Parker and Melody, but we really got to spend time with them. I tell you, this morning in the first service was a historical moment in our ministry, and I don't even think my daughter recognized it. But as far as I know, I've heard Melody sing on Praise Team several times, but this is the first time that I recall that I've gotten to preach after she sung on the Praise Team. So that was kind of neat to be a part of being able to do that. And just to be here and always, it's always a delight to come. I want you to take your Bible and open it to the book of Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. And in just a moment, we'll see the biblical basis for the message that I want to share with you this morning. I want to talk to you this morning about the principle that changes everything. I want to share with you this morning a simple biblical principle that is so powerful, if you practice it as an individual, it will change how people relate to you. If you own a business and you practice this principle, it will have a positive effect on your business. And in the context which I will share it primarily this morning, if your church practices this principle, people will be driving from three counties around to be a part of your church. Now, I realize I just set a very high standard for what I'm going to share with you this morning. But I think by the time I conclude, you will agree with me with what I just said, and you will agree that it is the principle that changes everything. But before I give you the biblical basis, let me take you on a little bit of a journey how I discovered the principle that I'm going to share with you this morning. I was blessed to have a grandmother, my father's mother, who lived to be 96 years of age. She had a wonderful mind. She cared for herself. She always said she wanted to live to be 102. And one day I asked her, why did you choose 102? And she said, well, I want to live to be 100 so I can say I did it, and then I'd like to have two years to brag about it. So that was the spirit of my grandmother. But as she got older, she developed this habit of saying things, and everyone knew what she meant, but it was not what she said. And I started actually noting these. I got a little book that I, a little booklet that I wrote all these down. But let me just give you a few, because once you get the spirit of my grandmother, uh, the church where she attended, their pastor became ill, and the people were really struggling with why is our pastor sick, and why would the Lord let him go through this? And so the pastor called me, and he said, Phil, would you be willing to come and speak to our church and to speak on suffering and how God uses suffering in our lives? And I said, sure. And so I went to my grandmother's little Baptist church, and I can remember when I got there, and I spoke on suffering and how God uses it in our life. And at the close of the service, my grandmother walked up to me, very sincere, looked me right in the eye, took my hand, and said, son, I want you to know I did not know what suffering was until I heard you preach this morning. I know what she meant, 
but it's not what she said. I'll give you another one. Every time somebody heard me preach and called my grandmother and told it about, about what they thought, she immediately called me. And one day she called me and she said, son, did you preach and call the church near her home? Did you preach there Sunday? And I said, yes, ma'am, I did. She said, well, you know, my friend Hazel goes to that church. And I said, uh, I, I didn't know that. And she said, well, I, she called to tell me about your preaching. Now I want to tell you what she said. I said, well, <laughs> I'd like to know. She said, for me to tell you that the last guest preacher they had preached for one hour and said absolutely nothing, but you did it in 30 minutes. <laughs> I know what she meant, but it wasn't what she said. I went to see her one day, and I want you to get her spirit of her heart, but my grandmother was a little... Um, always was upbeat, optimistic, excited about life. Well, this one day I went to see her, and she was a little blue. She was just not having a good day. And so I said, Big Mother, you having a bad day? She said, I'm having a terrible day, a terrible day. And I said, well, do you not feel well? Oh, I feel fine, but I'm just having a terrible day. And I said, well, why are you having a terrible day? She said, well, I got up this morning, and I started thinking. Do you know every person I went to school with is dead? I said, really? Every one of them I went to school with is dead. She said, do you know everybody within 20 years of my age at our church is dead? She said, it's come from a big family. She said, all my brothers and sisters except for one is dead. And I said, well, big mother, that's not a terrible thing. That's a wonderful thing. Now, my grandmother's name was Lenny. That's an important part of the story. I said, well, big mother, that's not a terrible thing. That's a wonderful thing. She said, it's terrible. I said, why? She said, because they're all sitting in heaven right now looking at each other going, I don't think Lenny's coming. I don't think Lenny's coming. <laughs> that was my grandmother. But my grandmother... <clears throat> Uh, anytime you were with my grandmother, she would always have those little sayings and slogans like that. But one of the things that happened to my grandmother when she got into her later years, she couldn't get out very much. Every day, her life was pretty much a routine. Here's what she did every day. My grandmother would get up and she would have some breakfast. And then after she had breakfast, she would read a little devotional book and have her devotion. And then she had about four or five people she called every morning. And I guess to see if they got up, I don't know. But she'd call those four or five people. Then she would eat lunch. Then after lunch, she called those same four or five people. And then she would eat what she called supper. And before she went to bed, she called those same four or five people. Now, the only problem with that was, you see, my grandmother would talk to them two or three times a day. So when she had a conversation, she just picked up where they ended the last conversation. Now, here was the problem. If my grandmother called you and you were not one of those people she called two or three times a day, she had a tendency to start the conversation in the middle of a conversation. She would be talking about things you have no idea what she's talking about. So I'm one day sitting in Atlanta airport about to get on a plane to go preach and my cell phone rang and it was my grandmother. That was a little unusual. Normally I called her. She didn't call me. So I answered it and I said, hello, big mother. That's what we all called her. 
And without any words of introduction, she didn't say, son, how are you? How's the family? Where are you preaching? Where are you going? No, she didn't say any of that. I said, big mother, uh, I said, hello, big mother. And she said in a rather desperate voice, son, what's wrong with Obadiah? Yeah, I had no clue either. <laughs> and I had those milliseconds that go through your mind, and I'm thinking somebody in our family named Obadiah Six, she's calling me to find out what's wrong. And I suddenly realized I don't know anybody in our family named Obadiah. I hadn't even heard of anybody named Obadiah. So in those milliseconds of thinking that, I thought, well, I can't tell my grandmother. I don't know who she's talking about. That'll embarrass me. So I decided I would deflect her question by asking her a question. So I said, well, big mother, is he sick? She said, no, he's dead. Uh, she said, he's been dead for years. And I said, well, big mother, you called to ask me what's wrong with him. Now you tell me he's been dead for years. That's probably what's wrong with him, I guess. But I said, you've got to explain your question. And it was then my grandmother explained the question. You see, she had a Bible that she got during World War II when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president. Now, I don't know what that had to do with my grandmother's Bible, but if you ever draw attention to her Bible, she would tell you that she got it in World War II when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president. And my grandmother had done something that a lot of people did in North Alabama and rural areas, I guess still do, is every time she heard a preacher preach, she would take out a pen and she would write his name and the date and draw a line over to the text. Now, my grandmother had done that since World War II when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president. She had always done that. Well, that particular morning, my grandmother got up, got out her little devotion book, and the suggested scripture was from the book of Obadiah in the Old Testament. And so she read it and then read the devotion thoughts. But before she closed her Bible, she looked back at that Bible she had had since World War II, and you know who was present. And she, she looked at it, and all the margins were clear. And she suddenly realized that since World War II, she had not heard one sermon from the book of Obadiah. And she began to wonder why. And she thought, well, I'll call my preacher grandson and ask him, son, what's wrong with Obadiah? <laughs> well, after that, I went to see her and I said, big mother, I want to look at your Bible. And I picked up my grandmother's Bible that she had had for all those years. And I noticed all those notations. There were some places where, like John 3, 16, where she had heard so many sermons that she couldn't note them all. But then I began to notice in my grandmother's Bible that there were books of the Bible, like Obadiah, Nahum, where she had never heard a sermon. And there were large sections of books of the Bible, and like Job and Ezekiel and Leviticus, where she had never heard a sermon. And to my surprise, there were chapters even in the New Testament where she had never heard a sermon. And one of those chapters was Romans chapter 16. So I decided that I would go back to some of these chapters and places to see if there's something we as preachers have missed. Because you see, Romans 16 is as inspired as John 3:16. And so when I went back and I began to read through Romans 16, I realized why most preachers ignore it. Because if you really read it, all Paul does is send greetings to friends. He say, salute this person, greet this person, which is a North Carolina way of saying, say howdy for me to that person. 
That's all Paul does. So preachers have a tendency, if they're not preaching through the book of Romans, to say, well, there's not really a lot of doctrinal material here, so we tend to, to skip it. Well, as I went back and I read Romans 16, all the saluting and greeting that Paul was doing, it was then that I discovered the principle that changes everything. Now, to give us a biblical basis for it, I want to show you some verses. We won't read all of Romans 16, but let me show you a few verses of this greeting that Paul did. Look in verse 3. He said, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Verse 6, Greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. Salute Andronicus and Juna, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Then notice verse 12. Here are two of my favorite people in all the New Testament, and they're not mentioned anywhere else. I just like their names. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. Probably were twin sisters. Verse 13 said, salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you believe that the early Christians loved the Apostle Paul? Well, of course you do. You cannot read the book of Acts without seeing how much people loved Paul. In fact, do you remember when Paul is on his final missionary journey, and he goes to Ephesus and spends time there. As he is leaving, the elders go with him down to the ship. And when they get to the ship, they pray together. And Paul tells them they will see his face no more. He'll never see them again. And the Bible says they fell on his neck and wept. Now, you don't weep when someone's leaving unless you love that person. You see, people love the Apostle Paul. But the reason people loved Paul is because Paul loved people. And there's the principle. People love people that love people. In fact, will you say that out loud with me? People love people that love people. Now, if I ask you, do you believe uh, or do you love people? Every person in this room would stand up and say, absolutely, I love people. I mean, if we went around the room and I just went around, do you love people, you love people, you love people, you love people? Everybody would say yes. Nobody would stand up and say, preacher, I just want to say, I just hate everybody. If you felt that way, you wouldn't be here. So you would tell me you love people. If I ask you, is Green Street Baptist a church that loves people? You would say, absolutely. So apparently our problem is not do we love people. Our problem is how do we make people feel loved? So what Paul does in Romans 16 is he illustrates how to make people feel valued and how to make people feel loved. See, Paul understood three things about love that when you practice this aspect of love, people feel it. First of all, Paul understood that love appreciates people. You know, when I first read Romans 16, and I noted what Paul was doing here, I, I, he was listing all these people, and there's about 27 people that he mentions. 
And I knew when I read it, I knew from my study of the book of Romans that when Paul wrote this epistle, he had never been to Rome. Now, he knew in his heart he would go later. He did go later. We know that from the book of Acts. But at the time he's writing, he's never been to Italy. He's never been to Rome. And so while he is writing all of these people, I thought, I know exactly what Paul is doing. He's mentioning all of these people, and I bet if I researched these 27 people, I would discover that these were city leaders and civic leaders, and, and they're wealthy people and people of influence, so that when Paul gets to Rome, he's already kind of greased the skids a little bit, and they can help his ministry. So when I began to research the 27 people Paul mentions in this final chapter of Romans— to my surprise, half of them are women and slaves. Do you know in Roman culture of that day, women and slaves had no standing at all? For me to express to you how Roman men felt about women and slaves, the best I can equate it in American culture is like we feel about dogs and cats. We may like the dogs and cats, we may love the dogs and cats, but we don't put the lives of dogs and cats on the same par as we do the lives of people. That's why, God help you, but if you kill a dog or a cat and you do it intentionally, we don't give you the death penalty or we don't send you to prison for life because we don't view dogs and cats at the same level as we do human beings. Well, the Roman men did not view women and slaves at the same level they were. So they viewed them almost like dogs and cats. So half of the people that Paul mentions in Romans 16 are women and slaves. Let me put that another way. Half of the people Paul mentions in Romans 16 can do nothing to him or for him. You want to know the real test of love? Do you appreciate people who can do nothing for you or to you? Paul practiced love where he appreciated people for who they are and not for what they could do for him. And people knew it, and they felt valued. I have a dear friend named Maury Scobie. That name probably doesn't ring a bell to you. To I tell you what Maury Scobie committed his life to doing. From the time he got right out of college shortly thereafter, he knew God had called him to do one thing, and he faithfully did it. He chose not to marry so he could pursue what God called him to do. Maury Scobie was the aide and assistant to Dr. Billy Graham. Now, many of you may be young. You don't realize the impact of Billy Graham, probably the most famous preacher literally in modern history, preached to more people literally in, than even the Apostle Paul face to face. He was the most influential guy. He died a few years ago a native of North Carolina, but he died a few years ago with a ministry that is still respected and revered to this day. But when I was with Maury Scobie and we were talking, because Billy Graham would preach to hundreds of thousands of people, and he knew every president from Truman all the way through to Trump, who was president when he died. He, they consulted with him on a regular basis. World leaders consulted with him. So I asked Maury, I said, here is someone who is so influential his own family says you spent more time with him probably than anybody. So I want to ask you, was there any characteristic of Dr. Billy Graham that you rarely found in other people? And without thinking, he said, absolutely, and I can tell you what it is. I said, I'd like to know. 
He said, Dr. Billy Graham literally appreciated everybody. He said, when we would travel, you couldn't get him to a seat in an airplane because he had to thank the pilots for flying and thank the flight attendants. And when you got him to a hotel, you couldn't get him to the room till he had personally thanked everybody at the front desk and he had thanked all the people who cleaned the room. So it's no surprise if you drive down to Charlotte to the Billy Graham Library and you go on the research side and you research the correspondence of Billy Graham, then you should not be surprised to discover that over 75% of all letters Billy Graham wrote in his lifetime was to tell somebody, thank you. Now, do you wonder if maybe the reason why world leaders wanted to listen to this man, why people listened to him preach, why he had such influence, is maybe people saw in him a man who cared for people and he loved people for who they were, not for what they could do for him. You know, love appreciates people. Let me tell you a second thing love does. Love also acknowledges people. You see, if I'd been writing Romans 16, there would have been one verse, and it would have said, tell all my friends hello, period. I wouldn't have taken the time to list everybody's name, and I would be writing with a modern computer. Paul is writing, or his scribe is writing with something that is a primitive writing instrument on something that predates paper. And because he was a prisoner, he probably was getting those writing instruments that others had thrown away. That's why one archaeologist said it may have taken Paul as long as one minute to write one letter of the Greek alphabet. But he took time to list Tryphena and Tryphosa's name. That took him 30 minutes. But you know why he did? Because love always acknowledges people. Let me ask you a question. You ever had a friend, maybe went to church here at Green Street and because of circumstances, they had to move away to another city. You've kept up with them. You talk to them. So you're talking to them one day, and you ask them, say, have you found a new church home? And they say, well, not yet. We visited churches. We went to this church. Preaching's good. Singing's bad. Went to this church. Singing good. Preaching's bad. And we went to this church, and they didn't have any real programs for the kids. So you're hearing them share all that. And so then you just start suggesting churches you've heard of. Well, I heard of this church and this church. So you suggest a church, and they say, oh, we went to that church, but we're never going back to that church. So you ask them why. If you hear somebody say they're never going back to a church, do you know what is the number one reason you will hear? Because we went to that church and nobody spoke to us. Now, why does that offend people? I mean, I was thinking the other day. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say to me, you know, I I got thrown in jail the other night, but I'm not going back because nobody spoke to me. (laughs) So why does that offend people? Because we know anytime someone is of value to us, the first thing we do is acknowledge them. When you acknowledge people, your body language, your word says you're valuable. And if you're valuable, that means I love you. But when we look at people and we just walk away, our body language says you're not very important. And love always acknowledges people. And by the way, do you know the Bible tells us there are two ways we're to do that? Now, one way we do it, Paul does it here. John said in 3 John, we are to do it specifically. And John said, we are to greet the brethren by name. 
When you acknowledge people, we are to call people's names. Now, I know at the close of the service, somebody's going to walk up to me and say, now, preacher, I agree with you. I really do. But I'm not good with names. I just can't remember names. To which I'm going to ask you then, well, if you have a problem remembering names, how do you find the ability to remember the name of every person who owes you money? There's a guy here in High Point. He owes me $5,000, and for the life of me, I cannot remember his name. No. You don't hear people say that. Now, I know what people mean. Here's what you're saying. I, I really would like to know people's names, but I don't call people by name because I'm afraid I will say the wrong name, and I'll be embarrassed. Well, as someone who has called a lot of people by the wrong name, let me help you with that. If you call someone by the wrong name and you did it innocently and you're making the best effort, do you know that it has the same result as if you call them their right name? Because you're signing value by trying to call their name. I have friends who are in politics, and especially when you're, you're running at a federal level and, so, and higher. You know one of the things they tell you? is when you meet people call their name. Because here's what studies have revealed. If you meet somebody and you call their name three times, the odds they'll vote for you go up exponentially. So it's like, Brandon, good to see you. Great to be with you, Brandon. God bless you, Brandon. And if that's true in politics, if it's true in the secular world, how much more should it be true of the church? That when people come to our churches, we learn their names. And we call them by name because we'd say Jesus is the sweetest name, but the second sweetest name you hear is your name. Well, you said there were two ways. There is. The other one's right here in verse 16. If you'd like to read it for yourself, it says right here, we are to greet each other with a holy kiss. It's in the book. <laughs> See, people say to preachers all the time, y'all are to preach everything in the Bible. And we preach on that. People are like, oh, you're not bring that up. <laughs> of course, then we explain it. This was pre-COVID, right? Yes, it was pre-COVID. <laughs> so are you telling us we're supposed to run up to people and kiss them? No, no, hang on. That's the way Roman culture did it. Now, let me tell you the equivalent for us. It's shaking somebody's hand or hugging their neck. Amen. It's when you see somebody, man, Joe, Mary, it's so good to see you, and you hug their neck. You know what you have done? You have assigned value to that person. You have signed value because you've hugged their neck. You've expressed love to them. And when you acknowledge people, they feel loved. But let me tell you, there's a third thing you did. Paul also knew that love affirms people. Love brags on people. You see, Paul just didn't write Romans 16 and say, say hello to and made a list. He didn't do that. He said, say hello to Priscilla and Aquila. And you notice the next thing he said, he said to the church in Rome, they risked their life for me one time. Priscilla and Aquila already knew that. But do you see what Paul's doing? He's bragging on them to the church in Rome. And you've got these folks there. You, you've got, you, you've got, what? Well, you've got Juna and Andronicus. Why, man, y'all don't know this, but they're in prison for the gospel and, and they, they, they were come to Jesus before me, and he said, and I'll tell you something else. The apostles talk about what great Christians they are, bragging on them. 
and you've got Mary, and you've got, you, you've got Trifina and Trifosa who've done so much for the Lord, and say hello to Rufus and his mama. She's been like my own mama. That's literally what he said. You see what Paul's doing? He's bragging on them. Hey, you want people to feel loved? You just start bragging on them. Just start saying kind things. Just commenting on when they do something well. Comment just on like, you know, you say, well, there's just some people, they don't do anything good. Well, just occasionally comment on what they're wearing. Man, that's a nice shirt. That, that's a nice jacket. When you brag on people, people feel loved. And I'll tell you something else. When you brag on them when they're not around and they hear about it, it has 10 times the force. Now you say, well, that's just hard. Okay, let me help you with that. You know how the Lord taught me when you love somebody, your natural default is to brag on them, was when God gave us grandkids. Uh, Brandon said, we have five grandkids. We do. Uh, our oldest three are in Alabama. Our two youngest are here. Our two oldest are granddaughters. Three youngest are our grandsons. And I'm going to tell you, when our two oldest started participating, of our two granddaughters, one loves, she loves the theater. She loves to be in plays. The other one, she likes to play soccer. Still hadn't understood that game, but she loves to play soccer. And of course, you know, our three boys, they love to play baseball. Got to go to their baseball games yesterday. So here's what would happen. I'd, I'd see somebody like after a ball game and I'd say, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it because Bryce and Caleb are my grandkids, but they're the best ones on the team. I'm not saying it because she's our granddaughter, but she's the best one in the play. And then Debbie pointed out to me, she said, you know you're lying when you say that. You're saying it because they're their grandkids. So I said, you're right. I won't say that anymore. So now I just say, they're the best ones on the team. I dropped the grandparent part. I just, now, here's the funny part. I really believe that. But you know why I believe it? Because everything they do, there's a filter in front of me called a grandparent's love, and I see everything they do through that filter. So I don't see the mistakes they make. I only see the home runs. I don't see the time they miss the line in the play. I only see when it's perfect. You see, when you have a filter of love in front of you, you're always looking for the good and not the bad. You're always looking for something to affirm and to build up. And that's what Paul did. These weren't perfect people, but Paul was bragging on the good things. You start bragging on people and affirming people, you'll be amazed how people would just manipulate to be around you. Because nobody in our society hears a kind word anymore. So what did Paul understand? If you appreciate people for who they are, not for what they can do for you, if you take time to always acknowledge people, and boy, if you learn their name and shake their hand and hug their neck, and if you just affirm people, spend a little time bragging on them, you'll be amazed how they react. In fact, let me, let me tell you about a five-year-old who got this principle. He understood it, and he practiced it. His dad is a pastor and a dear friend. And the time this happened, he was, his son was five years old. But from the time his son was about four years of age, for reasons known only to God, <clears throat> the little boy had become fascinated with the garbage man. He said he was just in awe of the garbage truck. He said, so six days a week, couldn't hardly get him out of bed. But one day a week, man, he was up early and he was excited and he would stand on the front porch and he would watch them get the garbage. And he was just in awe as he got the garbage. 
Well, one of the neighbors had told them that the garbage man's name was Bill. And so he was standing on the front, front door, and we'd get in the garbage. He'd just wave and say, hey, Mr. Bill. The garbage man waved, going about his day. Well, when the little boy was five years old, Christmas was approaching. And so one night, the pastor and his wife were making out a list of everybody they, they needed to buy gifts. And the little boy said, Mama, we need to get the garbage man a present. She said, well, we don't normally get the garbage man a present. Well, I like him. We need to get him a present. Well, the pastor dad sees a teachable moment. So he says, i tell you what. Why don't you and your mom bake some cookies and we'll give them to Mr. Bill for Christmas? Oh, he thought that was a great idea. So the Wednesday before Christmas on Tuesday night, the pastor's wife and that little boy baked the cookies. And the next morning he was up really early. And his dad said, now don't go to the street until you see him. But when you see him, you let me know. We'll go to the street. And in a few minutes he said, Daddy, he coming. He coming, Daddy. All right, get the cookies. So the little boy got the paper plate and cookies, a little paper towel on top. And with his dad, they walked to the street and the garbage men stopped the truck. And he got out and he said, sir, is something wrong? He said, oh, no, not, nothing's wrong. He said, you probably noticed that my, my son, he's rather fascinated. Oh, yeah, he's always waving. Well, last night he and his mom baked some cookies and our family would like to give them to your family for Christmas. And the little boy handed them to the garbage man and said, Merry Christmas. And the garbage man said, thank you, son. And then the little boy said, thanks for getting our garbage. It sure would stink around here if you didn't. <laughs> And the garbage man put the cookies in the truck. But when he turned around, there's a tear in his eye. And he said, I don't think anybody's ever given me a gift because I'm the garbage man. But thank you. Then he looked at my pastor friend. He said, sir, what do you do? What's your line of work? Well, I'm the pastor of the Baptist church down the road. And he said, uh, just curious, did you and your family attend church? Well, it's just me and the wife. And I'm sorry to say we don't attend church. Well, uh, he said, well, you know, we may come to your church some Sunday. And the little five-year-old said, hey, this Sunday before church, my preschool choir is going to sing before the service. If you'll come listen to me sing, I'll sit with you during church. He said, we might do that. My pastor friend said he looked up, and as that little preschool choir was getting across the front, the garbage man and his wife came in and sat during the service. And just as he promised, that little boy sat with him. And when the service was over with, people in that church have told me the story. That little boy had the garbage man taking him around to everybody. And as they took him around, he was saying, this is Mr. Bill, best garbage man in town right there. <laughs> Never drops any garbage. Well, I have to tell you who came back to church the next Sunday. The garbage man and his wife. And the next Sunday, and it was in January that my friend got a call. Said, Pastor, would you stop by our house? My wife and I would like to talk to you. And they shared with the pastor that even though they went to church when they was little, they never trusted Christ. And they wanted to give their life to the Lord. The privacy of their home, they became Christians, was baptized. They're part of that church now. And I've met the garbage man and his wife. But let me ask you, do you know why there's a garbage man and his wife going to church serving God today? It's because a five-year-old got the principle. A five-year-old understood that appreciating people that most people never say thank you, taking time to acknowledge, hey, Mr. Bill, affirming, best garbage man in town. That five-year-old led a garbage man and his wife to the foot of the cross. Amen. And I want to tell you, when you love people like that, you'll be amazed how it changes everything. Do you remember the principle? 
people love people that love people. Would you say it one more time with me out loud? People love people that love people. Now let's bow our heads. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Our musicians and Parker are coming and in just a moment we're going to stand and there's an old invitational hymn that says, I surrender all. We're just going to sing that this morning. Pastor Brandon, Pastor Mark are going to be here at the front. And you know today, the thrust of my message has been to Christians of every age group. Young, middle-aged, senior adults. And what I've really called you to do today is to love people. Not with your intentions. Oh, I'll do that. No. I've called you to put it into practice. And for some of you, that may mean stopping to say thank you and appreciate people who normally are ignored. Maybe it's even at church to find yourself getting out of your comfort zone and going over to people that you see that you may need to go over and introduce yourself and learn their name and welcome them. And then when somebody does something, as simple as it may be, just to say a word of affirmation, let them know how good they did, how proud you are of them. All of that is a simple act, but let me tell you, we're living in a world that rarely sees love, people loving them without some ulterior motive. And when you love people like that, you will be amazed at how it changes everything. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning. And it may be something that you haven't done in a long, long time. But I'm going to ask you this morning, if in your heart today, you want to say, I want to love people like Paul loved people, then in a moment when we stand and we begin to sing, I'm going to ask you, and it may take a moment or two, but that's fine. I'm just going to ask you if you'll slip from where you will be in the auditorium and even in the balcony, it may take you a moment and come to Brother Brandon, Brother Mark, and here's your simple commitment. I want to love people like Paul loved people. Well, now, preacher, why, why do you think it's important I come forward? Here's why. Not only does it show other people what you're going to do, but it gives the Holy Spirit permission to hold you accountable. So this week, when you're seeing somebody, the Holy Spirit says, now, there's somebody you need to tell them thank you. There's somebody you need to express appreciation. There's somebody you need to brag on. The Holy Spirit's going to hold you accountable, and you're going to be amazed at the impact. So I'm going to ask you, would you be willing? Would you just go ahead right now? It may have been a long time since you've walked down an aisle. But to come this morning to say, I want to love people like Paul loved people. Maybe you're here for another reason and you want to trust Christ or be a member of this church or follow the Lord in baptism. You're welcome to come as well. But I'm going to ask those who are Christians, will you lead the way? And as we stand to our feet in a moment, not to even hesitate, but you be the first to come to say, I want to love people like Paul loved people. Father, I pray you would give people the freedom now to respond. Thank you for those from the balcony, from the main floor who are coming right now. I'll thank you and I'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.